at some point, get to the point where you're actually saving ahead of having to buy a car. If you can afford $200 a month, put that aside for the next three to five years and then buy a car with cash. That, that's really the way to become financially uh, secure. Hey everybody, it's David and Leo, and in this session of Getting Money Right, we're going to be talking about some common money questions, and this is a continuance of some of the things that we've been doing, just answering those basic questions that you and I get all the time, Leo. Yeah. So just to kick us off, uh, you know, there are some really unique terms on the credit report, and somebody kind of wrote in and said, what do they all mean? What does this look like? Well, I have all these crazy terms. What do they mean? Yeah, there, there are a lot of terms connected to our credit report. And sometimes when we read them, it's like, I'm not sure who put those things together, but it wasn't uh, uh, a person that, that really wanted us to know what, what's on there. So hopefully we can go into some of these terms and give you some understanding of what they are. I, I do want to say that most of these credit bureaus will have some kind of a glossary of terms where you can go and read about how to do that. It will take a little bit of time. So yes, you're going to have to put some work into it. But ultimately, that information should be provided by the Bureau. But we're going to go over some of the basic ones and help you to understand them. Yeah. And I think if you look back to the our session, I think it was um, episode number 10, where we talked about the FICO score and credit scores. Yes. If you look at the history, originally, they didn't have to share this information with the consumer. And so they built it in a way that they understood. And when they had to share the information, they didn't want to make it necessarily easy. <laughs> Because they want to be able to communicate things about you to creditors um, without you necessarily fully understanding what it means. They, they built it for themselves. They didn't build it for you. And so yep. Leo and I are here to help kind of break down these funky questions or funky terms because uh, it, you'll read it and it kind of makes sense, but you really need to go a little bit more in depth. So Leo, what are some of those common ones? Yeah. So there are some basic ones that I think as soon as you see them, you kind of understand what they are. So if you have a foreclosure, on your credit report, that means at some point you had a foreclosure. Your house or your property was foreclosed on, and that's what that is. And that'll stay on your credit record from somewhere between seven and 10 years. If you have bankruptcy, it's a proceeding in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court that was put on your record because you went through bankruptcy. So you will see that, and that will stay on there up to 10 years. So those are easy ones. You may have something called collection. Now, collection is an attempt to recover a past due amount by a credit agency or collection department. So if you had a debt that you stopped paying on or you failed to pay on, and at some point that debt was either sold to a third-party creditor or collector, and that debt was put on your record, even if you paid it off or not, it still will be there on as, a, as a collection. Yeah, that's good. And a lot of times you'll hear or just see right on there just one word, default. And the default just stands for any time that there's a failure to make a payment on a loan or a debt when it was due. So you defaulted on it. Usually that happens when an account goes into delinquency for at least 30 consecutive days. Um, sometimes it's 60 or 90, but that default usually pops up really quick after 30 days. Mm -hmm. And it just means that you missed a payment. And so you're like, oh, I defaulted on this loan. Well, you, you missed a payment. Let's pick that up. Let's make that payment, get rid of that debt and never have to deal with it again. Yeah, it's not the end of the world, but you should know what it means. There's another one that's called charge off. Charge off uh, the balance on a credit obligation that a lender no longer expects to be repaid. That's what that means is that at some point the creditor just agreed, okay, I'm not going to get paid. I'm going to charge it off. So it'll show up as a charge off, meaning it's a bad debt that was written off. Yeah. And then there's a delinquency, and that's when you fail to even pay the minimum payment on any loan or debt 
when it's agreed, very similar to a default, but this happens when it's 30, 60, 90, or 120 days, you are now in a state of delinquency uh, because you have not paid. And most lenders have a monthly cycle, and so they are looking at it every month and saying, 30, 60, 90, you are delinquent, uh, default delinquent. Sometimes they go hand in hand. You might see one versus the other, but they're pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, Another one uh, is settled in full versus paid in full. Paid in full means you pay the entire loan amount in full, while settled in full means you negotiated the amount and paid a portion of the loan. So that's the difference between those two. Um, There are some good things that you'll read on your report. One of them is installment debt. That's not a bad term. It just means that the debt uh, to be paid uh, is to be done at regular intervals, and it's a specific period of time. And examples of this may be a mortgage or auto loan. So these are just installment debts that you've taken on, and they're not a bad thing. They just identify what that debt is. Yeah, sometimes when you go through a bankruptcy or some other different legal proceedings, you may have things discharged. And so you'll just see one word, discharge, on your credit report. And that means basically that you are granted by the court to be released from some debt. Uh, Maybe that is a bunch of different debts. Maybe it was just one or two debts. And that's something where you're going through a bankruptcy and they say, look, we know you're not going to pay this and we're just going to discharge that. Uh, Any debts that are not included in bankruptcy, like alimony, child support, uh, any liabilities for something you did maliciously, uh, and student loans. Some things can't be discharged at all, but some things like a credit card debt that you don't have any money to pay. Uh, I was working with somebody who was on Social Security. They had no other income besides Social Security. They were essentially... Um, judgment proof. The, the judge, if, if this person had to go into bankruptcy or had to go to court and there's no way the credit card companies could force them to pay their credit cards and they would have just been discharged, just removed right off of the credit report. Now, if you have a discharge on your report, uh, it's not quite as bad as bankruptcy. It's not quite as bad as foreclosure, but it's really high up there because it means you were unable to pay to the point where a creditor just basically stopped pursuing you for the money. And that's kind of a big deal. So a discharge might seem like, yay, I got something removed from my credit report. It's not necessarily removed. It's just been discharged. In other words, you're not going to have to pay it, but it's going to be a big black mark on the credit report for uh, a year, two years, three years. And the longer it's on there, then the less weight it has. So, so uh, you know, the further away it gets, the less it impacts your score and the more likely somebody is to lend to you again. Well, that's just a few of the terms that, that are on your credit report. And if you haven't pulled your credit report in a while, our recommendation is to do that. You have the ability to pull your credit report to get a copy of each of your credit reports from each credit bureau once a year. So every 12 months, you can get a report from Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And we encourage you to do that and then look over them. And if you don't understand what's on there, if you don't understand some of the terminology, get on their website, read their glossary of terms and understand what some of these terms are. Because if you do have something on there that's wrong or it's uh, incorrect, you have the ability to fix it. So become informed. Yeah, annualcreditreport.com annualcreditreport.com. And then the other thing that we like to look at is creditkarma.com. Mm-hmm. Just so you can get your free credit score. A lot of credit companies now will offer you your credit score. So if you have a lender that you owe money to, maybe like a credit card, they may give you your credit score for free. But go to Credit Karma and get your score and then go to annualcreditreport.com and get at least one of your three reports and check it throughout the year. So David, what do I do if my auto loan is upside down? That's our next question. Wow. So that, that's a big question. And that 
that's a tough one. <laughs> this is one that is not comfortable. Um, this is one of those things where you, you probably don't even realize it unless things have gotten really tight in other areas of your life. That's true. What typically happens here is people don't even realize they're upside down, don't realize they made a poor vehicle purchase until that thing compounds with another bad thing, compounds with another bad thing. Mm -hmm. And now multiple difficult financial situations have got this person scared enough that they realize I need to do something about my vehicle, which I can barely make payments on, but I can't even sell it for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. So when we say a vehicle is upside down, it means that the value of the vehicle is not high enough to pay off the debt that is owed on the vehicle. Uh, and, and this happens all the time because vehicles depreciate extremely fast in the first year. Uh, as soon as you drive the vehicle off the lot, it, it, almost any new vehicle goes down at least $2,000 in value as soon as you drive it off the lot. So just that little blum, blum, that little speed bump that you kind of hit <laughs> as you're going out of the dealership, you just lost $2,000. Now you get to inhale and you get to breathe in that beautiful new car smell. So maybe it's worth two grand. I'm, I'm not here to judge, <laughs> but, but I need you to know that you want, hey, you drive I've off been the there, lot. So I can't judge. Right. No. And there is no judgment, of course, but that's how this happens. So $2,000 off the bat within the first year, a $30,000 vehicle will go down $7,400 typically. Mm, that's significant. That's 600 bucks a month. Wow. The vehicle is just going down in value. And typically, the payment on a $30,000 vehicle is somewhere between $500 to $550. So let's say you have a $550 payment. Well, it's going down $600 in value while you're paying $550. And let's say you've got a 5% interest rate, which is a pretty decent interest rate for a car. 5%. That would mean that $100 of your payment is going to interest. So you're paying $550 a month, but 100 of that is just interest. So you're actually paying the principal down or the balance down by $450 mm-hmm. while the vehicle is going down $600 every month. So you're going upside down on your vehicle, $150 a month. It's like you're driving down the highway, throwing out $20 bills just you know once a day. Let's just drop a $20 bill out the window. Let's drop $10 out the window, whatever it is. So realize that that's how people get into the situation. And, and it's, a, it's a tough and it's a scary place to be. And so all right, after the first year, now you owe $24,000. Uh, after you've been paying this $550 a month, you owe twenty four. dollars but the vehicle is only worth 22000 So now you're upside down by $2,000 and, and you begin to realize, I can't make this $500 a month payment. This is killing me. Yeah. But now you can't sell the vehicle for what you paid for it or what it's worth. And so if you were to sell it, you would go upside down $2,000. And that's what we, when we say upside down, my vehicle's upside down, it means that the vehicle is going to end up causing you to go into debt if you sell it, which is a really frustrating place to be. Yes. So at that point, you've either got to pay the dealer at least $2,000 to take the car back um, or, and, that, and let's just put this up. It's only a 5% interest rate there. A lot of people end up in a 10% interest rate, a 20% interest rate, not, hopefully not 20% on the car, but I've heard 12, 13, 14, 15. Mm-hmm. And that means that now a lot of your money is going towards interest and very little is going towards principal. So you're going upside down even further. This is exaggerated the the more expensive a vehicle that you buy. So if you buy a $45,000 truck, it could easily depreciate at least $10,000 in the first year. And I have seen this over and over again. And, and, it, and it kills me because I've seen people with a brand new truck 
but they can't make the payments. They got excited about it. They bought this huge truck. They can't make the payments and they're 10,000 upside down on Mm -hmm. it within the first year. And now they can't afford to get out from under it. So what do you do? Uh, Well, there's no easy way to deal with this. I mean, just period, end of story. This is not an easy thing to handle. You're going to have to um, look for the most aggressive way to sell the vehicle. You're going to have to potentially pick up extra jobs to make the payments until you get back right side up. Uh, Or um, let's just take a a basic example where in in this scenario, and this is basic, we're going to say that you already have some cash set aside and now you've got to determine you know, do I use this cash to just keep it in my emergency fund? Should I be investing it or should I be paying off this debt with it and figure out what I do? So I just spoke with somebody even last week who owed $36,000 on a car, 36 grand, but the car was only worth 30K if they were able to find a buyer today. And the cool thing was in this situation, they had $30,000 in their emergency fund, but they wanted to know what to do. And when I looked at it, you know, there's two basic options. A $36,000 loan, well, they could sell the car for $30,000, and that would mean they still owed $6,000 on the vehicle, but they take that $6,000 loan, maybe they dramatically drop the type of vehicle they drive, and they go down to a $10,000 vehicle paid in cash. So $10,000 for the cash vehicle, $6,000 for what was left on the loan. Well, if you take their $30,000 emergency fund, you subtract that $16,000, they still have $14,000 left over in their emergency fund. They've got paid off cars and now they can save for the future. The other option would have been they take that $30,000 of cash, their emergency fund, they sink it into the $36,000 loan and now they still owe $6,000 on the loan and they have no emergency fund. And so that's really not where you want to be. And, and these were the things that they were wondering. Should I, should I aggressively pay off all my debt with my emergency fund? no decrease your vehicle, sell the vehicle you've got now, dramatically decrease to a much cheaper vehicle because that'll allow you to get out of the debt so much faster. You know what makes that that answer difficult is you said at the beginning that there's no easy answer. And I think what's hard for people is the fact that they they come to a decision point and they think, how can I get out of this? How can I salvage this? And the reality is sometimes you can't. You made the decision a year, two years ago to buy this thing. That was the mistake. You bought too much car. You didn't put enough money down. So rather than trying to salvage something or fix a a situation you can't because you can't go back in the past and and make the decision, you just have to say, how can I um, minimize the damage to where I'm at right now? And I think the the situation you posted to this this couple is, is, is the best option for them. And the better option is not to hang on to the truck, not to empty out their emergency fund and literally empty out $30,000 that could potentially save them from getting into further debt in the future. So it is a difficult answer, but it's because the mistake was made in the past and you just have to salvage as best you can. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if we're trying to not run into these situations in the future, what are the things we need to do today? Well, here's a great general rule of thumb when you're buying vehicles and and really how much vehicle you should own based on your income and for the whole household. So the rule of thumb that I like to have is that you should not have more than 35 to 45% of your household income wrapped up in vehicles and that's depreciating assets. Now, let me explain that out for a minute. Let's say that you have a household income of $40,000. Well, 35% of your household income, 40000 is $14,000. That means that if you earn 40000 your vehicle should never be worth more than 14000 
Now, let's say you have a single income home, but two people need to drive cars. Well, those two cars should not add up to more than $14,000. So if you're earning $40,000, then you should have two, two cars that are in the $7,000 range. Maybe one's six and one is eight. Maybe one's 10 and one's four. Mm -hmm. But you should not go over that. That is when you get into the danger zone. Uh, let's keep that going. $50,000 a year. At 35%, that would be $17,500 worth of vehicles. Uh, $80,000 a year. That's a really nice income. Mm -hmm. uh, $80,000 a year at 35%. Your vehicle total that you have in vehicles, and, and this goes beyond just cars, or really anything that's depreciating in value that has a motor in it, boats, uh, four-wheelers, anything that's kind of, it's almost like a toy, really. Mm -hmm. uh, it should not, it, altogether, it shouldn't combine to be more than $28,000 in value. And so if you have an 80K plus income, then maybe two $14,000 vehicles is appropriate or one $28,000 vehicle is appropriate. Mm -hmm. But when you're making 40 grand a year and you go out and you buy a $40,000 truck, uh, or a car or anything, you have dramatically, you've just made a choice right then and there that's going to impact you extremely detrimentally for the next four to five years. And that's tough. And, and it's a tough situation when people bring it to us. And that's why we say, be wise now. Know what you can afford before you even go in. And if you want to break it down, that's based on your overall income and a percentage. If you want to break it down to your monthly amount that you can afford on vehicles, go to leosebo.com and download the budgeting, the the creating a budget tool, because it has guidelines in there that says, oh, you shouldn't spend more than 15% a month mm -hmm. on your vehicles based on your monthly take-home pay. So there's a few different ways to look at it. Yeah, that's definitely the better way to go. Um, percentages are great, but when you're actually making financial decisions, it should be based on dollars and cents. So find out what is 15% of my income, my net income, my take-home pay. And once you know what that is, if it's seven, $800, realize that you can't have two cars with $400 payments because you still have gas and insurance and tags and repairs and all those things that come with it. So do the math, figure out what you can afford before you even walk out the door to try to buy a vehicle. But again, we also recommend that at some point, get to the point where you're actually saving ahead of having to buy a car. If you can afford $200 a month, put that aside for the next three to five years and then buy a car with cash. That, that's really the way to become financially uh, secure. Yeah, and we give you both of these options. Uh, a, go to the Leo Sabo, download the monthly spending guidelines, and see if it's 15% a month of your net take-home pay, and that is maybe it's 400 bucks a month, but that includes your car payment, your insurance, your gas, your repairs. Realize how much you can afford month to month, and this is usually what happens with somebody who is clawing their way um, through the beginning of their financial stages. And they they still have to take out a loan in order to buy a car, which is okay. But long-term, I want you to get to the place where you're not taking out a loan. And so maybe you have that $100 a month or $200 a month payment. And so you plan it based on your take-home pay for the month. At some point, you'll get to the place where Leo and I are, where you've got your cars paid off. And now you're thinking a little bit bigger picture. I don't want a lot of my assets tied up in depreciating assets. You know, I don't want all my, I don't want all my vehicles, they depreciate. I don't want my money tied up in stuff that goes down in value. Right. So now Leo and I will take a bigger picture. We don't do it based on that percentage of monthly take home because we spend hardly anything because our cars are paid off. So we're just paying for gas and insurance. So now we look at, okay, if my wife wants a $14,000 vehicle, 
Well, I add the value of her vehicle plus my $8,000 vehicle. That's $22,000. Does that fit into our net income or our take home? Is that 35% of what income and would that be a fit for our lifestyle? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to speak to two different audiences. One, if you still have to take out loans, do it off of that net take home. But if you're at the place where you've paid cash for cars for many years, don't let yourself get sucked into buying too big of a car that wraps up too much of your net worth in assets that are depreciating. Yeah, what David is saying is just because you can spend that much doesn't mean you should. Why not redirect that money for something that's going to be of better value and higher value for your family long term? So let's move on to the next question. Uh, Leo, should I use my 401k or any other retirement funds to pay off some heavy debts I've got in my life? Short answer, no. You know, it's too hard to save, right? I mean, it's it's one of the things that we struggle with the most is saving money consistently. And saving a, enough money is a difficult thing. So the short answer is no, you shouldn't do that. But let me give you some reasons. First, you'll miss out on the earnings your investments will have generated of all those years if you take it out. So for instance, let's say you take out a loan on your 401k, right? If you do that, you're taking out, let's say, a $10,000 loan. And I know there's arguments about the fact that you're paying yourself back with interest and and it's the same as just leaving it in there and it's a guaranteed percent return. No, folks. The, the, the reality is that if you leave that money in there, not only will it earn more, the statistics show that if you leave the money in there for a long period of time, it will earn anywhere from 8 to 10 to 11%. So not only will you make more money that way, it's compounded. It's compounded interest. So that means your interest will make money on the interest and it will just keep growing. Uh, literally, if you take out a $10,000 loan and you, let's say you do it 20 years before you retire and you never pay it back. Let's say you, something happens and you can't pay it back. If you don't pay it back, you could lose literally, if you were to make $10,000 invested at 10%, that would have made you in 20 years $57,000 in profit. So you're giving up $57,000 by taking that money out and not pay, putting it back. So that's one. Just don't don't give up on the on the compound interest that 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 money is going to generate. Yeah, because you hear that argument. Oh, you know, I'm paying myself back. I'm paying myself back, and I hear that. I I, I get that argument, but you've just disconnected a an investment that would be making you money, and the money would then be making money on top of that and on top of that. So I love that. Yeah, you'll never catch up. And then the other thing is that if you pay your loan back, you're paying with after tax dollars, right? Yeah, okay, that's so, a big deal. So now you're paying. Now, listen, folks, you're paying your tax twice on this money. First, you pay tax twice on the money you borrow plus the interest that you add to it, right? And then when you take it out at retirement age, you're also going to pay tax on it because the IRS cannot distinguish the difference between pre-taxed, your normal contribution, which you make through your employer or you know from your paycheck, and after tax, your loan repayment, right? They can't distinguish the difference between those two. So you'll pay taxes on that money twice. So that's another reason not to do it. One more is if you default on the loan, you'll get a large tax bill. If you don't pay this back, uh, in fact, if you default, not just because you don't pay it, but if you don't pay it like you're supposed to on time and on, you know, what happens is you you miss and it becomes in default and, and eventually the IRS just says, okay, they didn't pay it. It's, it's a withdrawal at that point. And now you're going to get that 20000 10000 whatever you took out is going to be income to you in that year, right? And if you're under 59 years of age, then you'll also incur a 10% penalty. So it just gets bad to worse. Here's one more. If you leave your employer and you'll, you'll need to pay the loan back in full within 60 days, you have 60 days to make that loan payment. And most people won't be able to. So you go into default or you go into, okay, 
I can't pay this, so I'm just going to take it as income. So no, I don't think it's ever a good idea to do it. It's too hard to save. It's hard for us to discipline ourselves to do it, to separate that money out so that we don't have to depend on it anymore. And if we can do that, I think we should just stick with that plan. Because again, we've talked about this in previous shows on investing, that it's the compound effect that makes you take a few hundred dollars a month and makes you a millionaire by the time you retire. And you're going to need that money if you're going to live to 89 years old and you need 25 to 30 years without an income. That's going to be your your income. And you are going to live to 89 years old or longer. We are pulling for you. We know you're going to make it. And you need to be aware that people are living a long time now. And you're going to have a wonderful life. And you're going to plan and you're going to save and you're going to get there. Now, the other big reason that, that Leo and I completely would say, hey, be very careful before you would ever go to a retirement asset to borrow from is because you're not dealing with the root issue. Mm. Why are you really needing to borrow this money? Because apparently your debt over here is out of control, but that debt is the symptom of some other root in your life. And so just like when you go and you pull weeds, you don't you don't just grab the head off of the weed, you dig deep and you pull out the the roots. And so you have to dig deep and say, "Why am I in debt?" It's probably because your house is a little bit too large. You bought too nice of a car. Uh, you're not sacrificing enough in your life for the future. Uh, and maybe you have to get more aggressive at work and you've got to find a way to increase that income. You've got to sharpen your saw and go out and, and find a way to cut more trees down. And whatever that looks like in your industry, you've got to sharpen the saw and go out and earn more. Get your skills honed so you can serve more people and increase your income. Uh, So it's behavioral. That's a big part of this is the behavior side. I do want to add one more thing. There is an exception to borrowing or taking money from an investment account. And I think that's it's it's minor, but it's something that I think we need to touch on, which is if you can't pay your bills and have to file bankruptcy. So if you have a loan or something you have to default on, I think in this situation – in my opinion, it's better to not cheat someone and take money that you have, even if it is locked up in a retirement account. You're going to incur a big loss, but the mistake you made is in taking on the loan or being in that situation. So not being too hard on you just to say it's better not to cheat someone and pay your own debt. And I think in that case, you need to do it. However, however, let me say this. You should do whatever you can. Get a second job, sell some stuff, spend less for a while before you cash out retirement. So if there's another way to do it, then do that, even if it means begging your creditors to give you some more time to pay it back. As much as you can, save that retirement account. Yeah, when you sign your name to a debt, and and that includes swiping a credit card because you signed your name to take out that credit card. If you swipe the card, if you buy a car, if you take out debt, that's your name. And it, it there is a level of integrity that Leo and I want you to keep. When you say you're gonna repay someone, that you repay them. And even if it even if it costs you a little extra, even if it hurts a little bit financially, if you don't pay them, you're hurting them financially. Mm-hmm. You've now assaulted them financially and we want your character to be clean. We want your integrity to be whole. Um, we, we want you to be the kind of person who's walking out of life that says, it's okay if I take a few hits to my finances to make whole somebody that I took money from. And even if it's, even if it's a bank, even if it's a credit card, this is still somebody who extended you credit based on your name. And if you don't pay it back, you're saying, hey, my name wasn't good enough in the first place for you to lend to me. And so there are situations where that happens. There are situations where things are out of control and we we do not want to, we don't want you to feel like you're a bad person, but anytime that you have the means to pay back, 
we would encourage you to go ahead and pay back. Then realize that the bankruptcy laws in America were built to protect people that have had circumstances and situations that happened to them unexpectedly, or even maybe it could have been anticipated, but you didn't have the awareness of the risk. And, and that's why the bankruptcy laws are there so that you don't end up in debtor's prison, right? So that you don't end up completely destitute for the rest of your life. It's just a hard hit for the next five to seven years. So integrity uh, while grace, integrity while grace, there is grace for no matter where you're at, you know, we're not mad at you. We love you. But there is a level of integrity that we would rather you take a, a little bit of a shave on your finances to go ahead and make somebody else whole. Absolutely. And, and it's a life lesson, right? I mean, for us to to continue to grow, not just in our finances, but to grow in our maturity and in our ability to to be good citizens, to do the right thing, uh, that's important. Financial uh, integrity means that you have integrity in your life. You can't be have financial integrity without being an integrous person. So we just encourage you to, to make the right decisions. And, and again, nobody is is faulting you. Sometimes these situations happen without our knowledge or without our, our full understanding of what we're doing, and that's okay. I've been there. I've made those mistakes. I've learned from them. And thankfully, I'm at a better place. And you can too. Uh, so regardless of where you are, just take the advice we've given you and, and do your best to, to move forward. That's really what we're asking you to do. All right, Leah, let's lighten it up a little bit. Uh, I've got a question for you. Comes right out of the books here. Why do banks have so many branches? Hmm. Probably because they believe money grows on trees, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly right, Leo. Yeah, I've heard uh, that one before. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me give you one. Um, why is money called dough? Oh, well, it, it's because we need it, Leo. <laughs> like we need the dough. Yes, we, yes, we need. Do. Yes. Okay. Yes, <laughs> that's good. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also share this podcast on your favorite social media platform. And while you're there, find us, follow us. Uh, get in a conversation with us and help us to better serve you. You can find the show notes on this episode and more content and resources at leosabo.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you join us next time so that together we, we can, can keep, keep getting, getting money right. So long, folks. Yeah, because you hear that argument. Oh, you know, I'm paying myself back. I'm paying myself back. And I hear that. I, I, I get that argument, but you've just disconnected a an investment that would be making you money and the money would then be making money on top of that and on top of that stuff.